Welcome to Deadly Discussions. I'm your host, Isaac Harrison. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional landowners on who we are recording on today, which is the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This week we have Ariel Lehman. Hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, yep. He's going to share. There we go. Um, his his journey um, to where he has ended up today in Melbourne. Um, his background in renewables. And correct me if I'm wrong, Ariel, but are you technically classified as a scientist? Well, that's what I classify myself as. And uh, sometimes I can be a computer scientist. Sometimes I can be a physicist. Sometimes I can be almost an engineer. Yeah. Wow. So when I think scientist, I'm thinking Jekyll and Hyde. Um, when you actually become a scientist and you work in that field, is it is it like that at times? Um, well, maybe in biology and chemistry. Yeah. But not 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 in the, not in the less uh, you know exciting disciplines like physics and applied maths and computer science and so forth. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. No worries. So that I think that probably ties into the question around AI. And your expertise around that. But before we get into any of that, let's go back to the beginning of your story. Now, you want to share about your heritage first and just how you've ended up in Australia. Yeah, well, um, it's a a long story. Um, I come from a a Russian-Soviet-Jewish background. I was born in uh, Latvia um, under the USSR days. Yeah, well... Yeah, and so then, um, age four, um, my dad was uh, pretty keen to uh, make uh, the journey to Israel and um, to you know live the the dream yep. of uh, establishing a Jewish state. Or the living established Jewish state. So um, he bundled us off, me and my mum, and uh, off we went. Uh, my grandparents, his grandparents, were his parents rather. Yeah, uh, we're already there. This was 1969. They were already there, and we came in 1971. Yeah, and uh, sort of established a life there. Um, lived there for about nine years. Yeah, went to uh, kindergarten, school, and so forth. Developed my uh, interests and love for science yep. and uh, astronomy. Uh, yeah. Uh, I thought I'd become an astronomer one day. Uh, yeah. That didn't quite happen. For a yep. while, like many other Israeli kids, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But yeah, fair enough. Well, when you see jets fly over, I just came back from yeah. War of My Land Council for IBA's Fugis yeah. Forum, and then on Williamstown next to a base there, and I spoke yeah, to right. Uncle, one of the elders, and I said, "I said, what's your relationship with the base?" He says, "Oh, we hate them." And I was like thinking it would be on a you know, um, political, environmental. He said, "No, we hate them because all the little, all the young kids see fighter jets, and when they turn sixteen, seventeen, they're already enlisting themselves into the army." And I was like, "What?" And he's like, "Yeah, so we're, we're training these kids up on country to stick around, and then they're like, thanks, uncle. See you later. I'm going to be a fighter jet pilot.' So I can definitely understand where you're coming from. So you you would have got there early days. Israel would have been really establishing a lot of its foundational." you know, policies and, and culture, really. Yeah, I suppose it was only about 22 years old, 23 years old at the time. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was pretty well established uh, as, a, as a cultural entity. And, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, as a kid, you know, you don't know any different. It's yeah, that's home. true. Yeah. 
uh, look, looking back on it, though, it was quite a, would have been quite an interesting historic time. Yeah, um, definitely. So astronomy, when I think astronomy, yeah. I'm thinking someone on a wooden boat um, navigating the stars to find new land. What does a modern astronomer do? Well, to be honest, uh, I'm not that close to it these days. Um, and uh, most of them maybe do astrophysics rather than astronomy. But yep. at the time, it was just you know, studying the stars and planets and uh, galaxies and uh, working out what's happening there, the, you know, the physics of star formation and planet formation and uh, galaxy yep. formation and eventually, you know, trying to understand the origins of the universe yeah, to the well. Big Bang. and So, yeah, yeah that's... Although at the time, I don't think I thought exactly at that level. I just loved the idea of stars and planets. And yeah, cool I think and definitely as a kid, it's either dinosaurs or stars as a young boy. That's right. That's pretty much it. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't that much into dinosaurs, interestingly. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, although my, one of my kids, uh, my son, yep. Max, he, he really got into those. Yeah. So I, I got to have a second go that... Uh, bite of that cherry yeah yeah my son <laughs> actually loves dinosaurs so much that he steals other toy dinosaurs from his cousins so i have to keep an eye on him yeah his theft he's a dinosaur yeah, thief absolutely. very clever um valid. very valid <laughs> so you're israel and then where do you go from there so you did did you do university in israel no no i was 13 and just sort of finished yep. primary school and then we zipped over about as far as you can go to the other side of the world. We went to New Zealand. New Zealand, yes. Yeah, so my dad was uh, pretty uh, disillusioned with the whole lifestyle in Israel. Life was pretty yep. pretty hard. The economy wasn't so great. Yep. And uh, the um, he was an engineer, electrical, electronic engineer. But yep. work work for people like that back in the 70s wasn't um, particularly easily forthcoming. Yep. So he was doing sort of stuff that was really not that interesting to him in yeah. the general electrical area and life you know war and stuff like that he just wanted to get out of there basically yeah of course so uh, we, we went waited. to New Zealand yeah, yeah. well just the yeah. most peaceful country on earth pretty much normally yeah normally a lot of recent events um, yeah North Island South Island North Island Auckland so Auckland. we went uh, old uh, university yeah a friend of his actually went straight from the Soviet Union to um to Auckland, so they wow. established themselves there. That's a change so he of thought he'd go and check it out and decided that that was the place for us. Yep. My mum wasn't too keen on the idea of leaving, but yeah. uh, she, she came along again for the ride. Now, being <laughs> being Russian and Jewish, you'd be like, come on, mum, it's, it's nearly as cold as Russia. You'll love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think she was pretty... Pretty pretty much uh, sort of accustomed to the Israeli climate. So yeah, okay. Yeah, New Zealand's not that bad. Auckland's not that bad. Yeah, otherwise. I was, was going to say. So, what's it like growing up? I'm, I'm assuming. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's not many uh, Jewish communities in the North Island of New Zealand at this uh, time. There was a reasonably well, you know, I know there was some like three thousand Jews in Mel- in Auckland at wow. the time. Didn't know and, that. Um, yeah, but. To be honest, I really um, clicked more with the, with, uh, the uh, non-Jewish people. Yeah, you know that's the interesting thing. You know, in Israel, everybody's Jewish. It's just not a thing. You know. It's yeah, of course. People yeah. going about their day. Yeah. And um, so I'm not really a kind of a 
isolated community kind of person. I yeah, think. yeah. You integrate. Uh, had, uh, yeah. So, I so what's it like um, growing up with uh, a lot of the Maori uh, culture as well? What was that like trying to well, get your head around? Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty out there. I was like, wow, I have to learn about two cultures now. Yeah. You know? Kiwi, Anglo-Saxon culture, and, and, <laughs> and also Maori culture, which was becoming a thing. You know. Yeah. You know, it was probably, um, um, you know, up <laughs> until then, it was sort of, you know, a little bit in the background and still, you know, legacy of the colonial era, perhaps. Yeah, of course. They're starting to get into recognition of, you know, Maori culture and the relevance of it and so forth. So, um, you know, I was exposed to that as well. And uh, so that was like, wow, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Two things I I have to acclimatize to. (laughs) Yeah. I think the the contrast here with Indigenous culture is because Australia is such a larger country land-wise and population. Uh, indigenous communities, um, their cultural, you know, precincts. Like for me, we had a, like a cultural hub up in uh, Swan Hill. We'd also have a lot of indigenous kids at school, so I was able to have, yeah, the Anglo-Australian culture. My father's Anglo-Australian, uh, same as his mother. Mm. You know, used to grow up eating um, bloody cow's liver and gravy and having your arms tucked in and get smacked if you're not eating right with a knife and fork. Thanks, Grandma. Um, but then I'd be, the next week would be eating uh, dugon, sea cow out of um, alfoil wraps. So, yeah, for me, I was, I was really excited to grow up with both. And then I found that not everyone had that exposure to a healthy indigenous culture. In fact, a lot mm. of the um, encounters, and maybe the same with uh, Mary, a lot of the encounters were um, people that were like vagabonds or drunk or homeless. And then people go, oh, well, that's... And First Nations person, that's an, a Maori person, that violent person or that drunk person. Yeah. Did you see a lot of that sort of cultural change um, because of sort of the scars of colonization in New Zealand? Well, maybe I did, but I probably wasn't that aware of it. It was, you know, I was 13. I was just like, everything was kind of pretty freaky. <laughs> yeah. Every <laughs> single aspect of it, you know, it's like down to the fact that, you know, let's say, I don't know, somebody told you they're going home for tea. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Testing the alarms here. Fair enough. <laughs> That's right. Unless oh, you did <clears throat> rock up to the wrong place like one of our other guys did, so and then call in. Okay. So um, the other thing that I was going to say was that you know people were saying, "Oh, well, I'm going home for tea." Yeah. And it's like, oh, they're going home to drink tea. Yeah. Like, no, no, that's what they call dinner in New Zealand yep. at the time, right? It's very British. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, I can't forget. And then, you know, all this, very, very, you know, although, you, you know, to an Australian New Zealand culture would be pretty familiar to me. It was like a lot of it was very odd. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from Israel. Yeah. You know, everybody was so polite and, you know, you couldn't interrupt. Yeah. In the middle of a conversation, and, you know, you know, very, very, um, kind of reserved culture yeah yeah pretty much the opposite so um it was yes quite, uh, quite confronting i've i've been to a few uh, i've spoken at some synagogues on panels and uh yeah the very opposite of indigenous culture i find yeah. uh you know there was a a guy that was an old an older bloke put his hand up and wanted to put his two cents in that turned into about two dollars because he just kept talking and um <laughs> the the entire synagogue was telling him to shut up i was like <laughs> i was like what it like like an old lady was just like oh shut up blah 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 i was like this is 
I'm like, that's very rude thinking in my head. But then he's just like, oh, and he waves his hands in the air and then he just be, be quiet. And I was just like, <laughs> if I did an indigenous culture, you'd be like blacklisted from coming to any cultural events. Um, yeah, I can imagine. So it's yeah. incredible the cultural differences. And it's actually helping my understanding, you know, as our office is in Alstonwick. So a lot of the cafes are, are Jewish, uh, you know, kosher. Um, and mm. so just understanding... Um, the differences is very important. I think for a multicultural country, it's very important to mm. understand that not everyone follows the same train of thought and uh, shares the yeah. same world view, world view as you know ourselves. Well, that's good, mate. Um, let's go into. We're running out of time really quickly. I knew this would happen. You're a talker, much like myself. Next one is: What does a day to day look like for yourself? So. I do a lot of research management and uh, running a couple of different research initiatives and research institute and uh, yep. the Grid Innovation Hub and at Monash and the Monash Energy Materials and Systems Institute as deputy director of that. Yep. So <clears throat> there's a lot of meetings and um, quite a bit of brainstorming. It's quite a creative environment um, as well. So I really enjoy working with a combination of academics and yep. researchers uh, or academics are researchers, of course, yep. um, students, and then uh, industry professionals uh, who work in the area of energy. So okay. as we're constructing a, sort of a, a range of collaborations around the energy and renewables and smart energy space, we get to have lots of interesting discussions. Yeah. And um, yeah, look, it's a, it's a little bit of an office job. Running between campuses is quite a common thing too. We have two campuses, yeah. main campuses, Caulfield and Clayton. Yep. So um, there's a lot of meetings at both campuses, so a bit of driving or busing around as well. Yeah, that's why you need an electric car, isn't that right? So yeah, absolutely. Put the plug yes. in for Monash to front up an electric car yeah. for yourself. A Tesla, yeah, probably. Well, yes. We need a fleet of Teslas. We need a fleet of Teslas. <laughs> That's right. Everyone who works in uh, the electricity space. That's right. I think set, should have a Tesla. Set the example. That's right. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, we'll go on to the next part, which is, you know, we could delve into what you do um, and then we could be here all day. Um, let's yeah, go sure. into, um, I call it partnerships with purpose or, you know, social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I know you mm -hmm. do a lot with communities in Indonesia mm -hmm. off the top of my head um, do you want to share what your what the, some of the projects you're doing up there yeah well the way I got involved in that was about four years ago um, Monash and a few other universities set up a centre called the Australia Indonesia Centre it's funded by Australian government and yep. Indonesian government yeah for you know to engage in a different kind of bilateral relationships uh, the relationship that works at the researcher to researcher level between Australian and Indonesian universities yep. and had a few themes including things like health and food and agriculture and infrastructure and energy so yep. um, uh, a couple of people around the universities in Australia and Indonesia and myself became the leaders of our energy research cluster yep. and so we formulated a research program around um, common challenges and opportunities for Indonesia and Australia. Yeah. And sort of we identified sort of two major areas which are closely related. You know, there's the whole decarbonisation and weaning ourselves off fossil fuels. Yeah. Both Indonesia and Australia are major coal exporters, um, pretty much the two biggest coal exporters in the world. Wow. So we've got that in common. Yeah. 
and um, both very coal-based, you know, grids. And then yeah. we also have a lot of remote access challenges, being very large areas, and um, for different reasons, obviously, um, uh, Indonesia is a developing country, so they're um, catching up on electrification. Yep. But Australia has still got a lot of remote communities. That's you know, right, some yeah. do have electricity, but it's not reliable, and it's very expensive and then we have a lot of indigenous communities as you know very well that have you know almost no electricity and That's it's, right. well, it's low quality you know, yes. low reliability and so we thought well this is a, a good area to focus on and you know we really can have sort of impact on on, on, on the human condition which yep. is something that I've been trying to do more and more yep. why I left the electricity sector in general is working in the corporate environment and, and went to the university space, I went back to the university space because I thought I'd, I'd be able to contribute more to humanity rather than just to the bottom line. Yeah, okay, that's true. Um, the question in my head, and I nearly lost it, but so Indonesia, I'm, I'm assuming very uh, smaller landmass. When, we, when yeah. we think renewables, we're thinking solar. We also have wind mm-hmm. turbines. Um, mm-hmm. For their transition into renewables, um, how do you see, what's the first step? Just top level. Well, so they, they've got a certain amount of renewables already in the form of uh, hydro and um, geothermal and yep. some potential to go <laughs> further. So that's a little bit of a sort of low-hanging fruit for them. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, solar is obviously a great resource there, although um, for a long time uh, and still is in many circles, they, they feel over there that solar doesn't work in Indonesia for various okay. reasons, yep. um, which are not necessarily um realistic uh, reasons like yep. you know it's too too hazy or something uh, okay yeah <laughs> uh, um because they do have a sort of more tropical climate but still it uh yeah. reality works pretty well but you know some consultant so we're going around saying things once. like that 10 yeah. years ago or something yeah <laughs> who knows so um but now there's a strong push but um they have a sort of a, a centralized uh, utility structure. One company runs everything, basically generation, transmission, distribution, okay. retail. Wow. And is, and is that, that a private organisation, or is, is that a private organisation, or a, a, a state? No, it's government owned. Government owned, yeah. But, uh, but corporatised. So okay, it's about the same. Their system uh, on the main grid is about the same size as Australia's, about fifty gigawatts of installed capacity. Yeah. So, but it's just like one company, whereas we have like, I don't know, 30, 40. <laughs> That's right. So, and then some are state-owned, some are private. Yeah. Yeah. So over there, they have a sort of a different kind of coordination challenge. They have sort of the natural institutional um, sort of inertia of one big bureaucratic organization, yeah. whereas we have a, maybe a coordination problem and a, and a market structure and That's market right, design yeah. problem. Yeah. So they, they, they do have a lot of potential. And uh, we actually released a report recently that uh, showed what they can do on the main grid there with, with the renewables yep. um, without um, breaking the bank. Yeah, of course. Um, now, what are your thoughts <coughs> while we're in the area of renewables and going mm. across to Indonesia about an uh, uh, organization that wants to set up large-scale renewables here on the top of Australia and then run a cable over to Indonesia? Do you think that's feasible? Yeah, it's certainly technically feasible and um, the right sort of um, financing structure will be economically feasible. Yeah. I think um, the 
the challenges of those are more political, geopolitical perhaps, and just yep. the scale of that sort of project means, you know, it's, it's to, to get the funding, I mean, it's like multi-billion dollar project. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, uh, and uh, in Australia, we're not used to building those, you know. That's right. By the government. Yeah. But I think it'll happen eventually. Um, Indonesia at the moment is in a been in a little bit of a economic, what they call economic nationalism mode, yeah. which means they, you know, they want to be self-sufficient in a lot of things, which yeah. understandably for a population of 260 million, you know, yeah. fourth biggest country in the world, it's kind yeah. of fair enough. Um, they've got a lot of their own natural resources, so um, I think they would find it hard to consider importing energy from Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think a lot of people don't think about renewables as it is power and power and poverty mm. are hand in mm. hand. And if mm. we, like these indigenous communities that have no power, low access, mm. it, it underwrites everything. It underwrites the economic development, underwrites, yeah, you know, absolutely. going out fishing and getting that put on ice. Well, how are you going to power the yeah. ice machine? Well, I've got no exactly. power. It's unreliable. So now yep. the whole, it's just tears all the way down. Yeah. And when you yep. think of Indonesia, you are, you're essentially saying, I'm going to trust this other country, Australia, which we've had a past of um, yeah, conflicts exactly. in different ways, you know, Bali bombings, we've had um, issues and migration, uh, mm. boat people coming through there. And so when you're saying, oh, I'm going to run a cable over to my neighbor, and you never really think because what happens one day if ScoMo is just like, you know what, I'm sick of Indonesia, I'm going to cut the cable and then sends the whole company into chaos. Like, I think we don't really think about that, um, especially people in the industry, because we want to think of, like, everyone needs to go clean energy, everyone needs to go green, you know, we need to Mm. get rid of coal. But it is a transition um, that has to take place. And like any relationship, you know, you have to have all buy-in from everyone. Yep. So, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, and, and, and basically... From an engineering point of view, risk management, you don't want a lot of your supply yep. you know, coming over one um, line from somewhere else, yeah, doesn't matter right. where. Yep. You know, so you could have multiple lines for redundancy and that's that's good, but then that costs more. Yeah. But you know, what would make sense is something that they're working on in, in the ASEAN area of, of creating an ASEAN supergrid. Yeah. And um, then even linking it through to, you know, Southeast Asia is, is on the mainland with China and so forth. So then, you know, we can easily see yep. a technically and economically feasible system that goes yep. all the way from Northern Australia up to China. Okay. And then you've got redundancy and you've got that sort of ability to, to mitigate the risks. And then it's looking pretty good. Yeah, of course. It's like anything, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. That's right. Um, awesome. So I'll finish up with where will you be, Ariel, in uh, five, ten years? Are you living in Indonesia? Are you, you've got your own island, you know? Sure. Are uh, you back in Israel? <laughs> you're back in New Zealand, you know? You're a big fan of the rugby union, probably? Uh, no, no, I'm not, not into union or league or... Any, uh, any or Australian sport or, in particular? Or AFL or... Um, Oh yeah, or, or, or any sport. That, you know, my parents were intellectuals from Soviet Union. You know. Oh yeah, of course. They, they, they didn't bring me up to to uh, really like sport that much. Oh, I quite like it. Used to watch a lot of it, but it doesn't matter. It's all good. That's right. <laughs> any one particular the, one is. is well, as a Queensland, so, I've no, got to convert you to right? rugby league. So, I'm going to convert you yeah. to being a Maroons it's, follower. Nah, right. <laughs> no, it's too easy. Yeah, but yeah. So where, where are you in five years? 
Well, I'd, I'd like to still see myself here doing more and having more impact in what I'm doing. Um, my my personal uh, professional mission in life is to contribute as much as possible to a renewable transition. I think um, climate change is is one of the you know, major, if not the yeah. most major, challenge facing humanity at the moment. Uh, if we don't get it right, there's challenges to you know. We could uh, end up with a lot of human suffering around the planet. And, yeah, um, and, and like you said, like Indonesia with the haze, and I've been to Hong Kong. Um, yeah. It's a bit harder to see the effects here unless you go to the Gippsland and you can see some of the haze coming from the power stations out there and the coal silt that sits in people's attics and it's getting in the water. Um, but like direct localised pollution is a very real um, yeah. threat. Yep. Yeah, so... Yep. Awesome, mate. Well, thanks for coming on today. We'll no definitely worries. be That's getting you in because we still, I still believe there's so many stories I can extract from you. So, yeah, I'm happy to come in again if you want. We'll definitely get you in. Next time we won't have fire alarms going off in the background. Yeah, yeah, my serious apologies for that. <laughs> no, that's fine. It's all good, mate. Well, thanks for coming on and we'll uh, talk Cheers. to you soon. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Bye. Bye.